0: Thank you for that generous introduction, and thank you, uh, uh, Pierre, because uh, this is a wonderful opportunity, I think. Uh, When Julian first proposed this to me, it seemed very exciting because these are issues that I've long struggled with, but then I began to think, uh, now I have to say something intelligent, um, and terror quickly supervened. Uh, but we'll we 'll see where this this goes. I think these are um, very challenging this this issue of interaction is very challenging, and you can see from my title uh, i 'm talking not about the integration but a collision between neurobiological materialism uh, and <clears throat> this critical issue of our humanity uh, before I get to the plan for the three lectures I'm going to give and today's lecture just a, a bit of a, an overview. Um, we, uh, in, in a simple way, in, in psychiatry and indeed in all of medicine, uh, we uh, often address patients, uh, individuals with illness, as, uh, as subjects. That is, as self-conscious agents who act for reasons, who have explanations. And Patients often in psychiatry at some point will say, "You know, how did I come to be this way? You know, how did this happen? Why do I suffer like this? And what must I do to get well?" Obviously, some people are uh, too psychotic to ask those questions, and in those cases, often the family will will ask, "You know, uh, what have we done wrong?" Or sometimes they'll say, "We've done nothing wrong," uh, as if uh, there's some simple causal schema. Uh, that of course uh, has been caricatured in, in the past, which was the idea of refrigerator mothers for autism or schizophrenogenic mothers. But this issue of uh, the, the, the human subjects is also important in our civil institutions, right? Is this person who has done something, who has transgressed to be treated as a moral agent? You know, could this person have done otherwise? And often the simplistic questions of, is this person ill, mad, or evil, or is this a person who could have acted otherwise, but is just morally lazy? Now, <clears throat> alternatively, as, as a psychiatrist, as, as any physician, one also treats the patient as object. One is fixing the machine you have a fill-in-the-blank, you know, you have a depression. This is a brain disorder. Hopefully, we're more sophisticated than to say you have a chemical imbalance, but it is said. And the treatment will be this and such, you know, some combination of medicine and a cognitive therapy, sometimes one or the other. So, over the next three lectures, uh, we'll be, at least I will be struggling with this question of whether there is a rigorous and useful conceptual integration between the patient as object, you know, brain as a a, a mechanistic uh, uh, entity, uh, or is there not? And uh, I I, uh, just met uh, Jonathan Glover and read his book, and it turns out we've used different, but similar, but colliding metaphors. Jonathan has looked at this problem of subject and humans as subject and object, uh, maybe he wouldn't use it those terms precisely and talked about the need to fuse our vision to g- gain some, something like binocular vision to see the patient and I've uh, I actually have the view that this may be just a bridge too far that we don't we actually don't have a useful language to bring these things together and that our engagement with patients as subjects is really a proxy for processes that we don't fully understand. Uh, and so I, I, I imagine that when psychiatrists engage someone uh, both as an ill person whose brain, metaphorically, uh, we want to do something about in a good way, and also as a human being, we're, we're actually suffering from double vision that we can't fuse and that what we do actually in practice is some kind of implicit switching from one mindset to the other uh, as we get unconscious cues uh, from the patient or as we follow sometimes uh, an overlearned script. But we'll come back to these issues and whether they're interesting and what their implications are uh, in the next two lectures. So my plan is to try to draw a mechanistic picture of mental illness. And this will not be a complete triumphalist plan because I think it's, uh, uh, this, it's an extreme challenge. Um, secondly, then uh, we'll talk about this uh, collision between neurobiological materialism and our ineluctable intuition of agency and personhood. And then in the third lecture, I'm gonna ask, you know, using the example of compulsive behaviors, you know what, whether my uh, proposed uh, way of looking at this makes sense, uh, and the question really, again, to use a visual metaphor, is whether whether we can see through the Cartesian fog. Assuming none of us would would uh, would uh, say that we think that there we there are two substances, but implicitly, as humans, we certainly often act that way. Okay, so. The, 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 the meat of this lecture, then, is how can we understand mental illness? And, you know, my intellectual commitments are as a, uh, a, a biologist and, uh, and I, I want to have a biological picture uh, of uh, mental illness. And I want to do this uh, ultimately so that we can understand, but more importantly, so that we can treat people better than we do uh, and so that we can ultimately maybe even prevent some of these illnesses. But psychiatry, I would argue, uh, is, is stuck. It faces uh, very challenging empirical and conceptual issues. The empirical issues include, and we'll come back to this, the incredible complexity of our genomes and of our brains, the heterogeneity of psychiatric disorders, the way I would like to put it is, our patients have not actually read and internalized the DSM-5, and then, very importantly, compared with other fields of medicine, the inaccessibility of the human brain. And for biology, this isn't trivial. So, if you are a cancer doctor, cancer scientist, you know the surgeon does an excisional biopsy and hands you the disease, and you know here's a dividing cell. And and when you do things to this cell, you you have this very simple assay, right? You want to know whether the cell. Divides out of control, or whether it dies. Um, But you know, this is this is a uh, an Inca trepanation. Uh, They uh, apparently permitted evil spirits to exit. But you know, this is not something obviously ethically or pragmatically we we can do. Um, be considered very impolite. But but uh, more than that, it wouldn't even be informative because our our. Unlike cancer, where a lot of the abnormal biology is cell autonomous, our brains act in highly distributed networks, and so we could get a piece of tissue, but we actually wouldn't learn what was causing this person's hallucinations or delusions, their depression, what have you. So we have very tough empirical issues. In fact, the brain is so hard that I would argue we could discuss this in later lectures, that, that we don't really have a good top-down, that is, a, a picture uh, based on um, um, symptoms and cognition and brain circuits. We don't have a very good picture of what's going wrong in mental disorders. But there are also conceptual problems that are really plaguing psychiatry. And these have to do with um, very reductive and impoverished models of psychopathology that have their origins, some of them in, in pharmacology. So, you know, this idea that, you know, well, you're, you know, you're, you're a pint down of serotonin and we're going to give you these medicines, uh, sort of almost hydraulic, you know, but very impoverished model of what might control mood and motivation. Um, but similarly, you know, we're, 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 we're still wedded to uh, a sense of how the world must be. You know, the world has to have genes and environment and an idea that their main effects. And in fact, you know, many of the, uh, gene by environment studies that are now so popular in psychiatry have to do with having selected candidate genes based on a limited set of hypotheses and a candidate environment, usually some stress or adversity where, where you can actually shop easily for your idea of stress or adversity, and then looking for the interaction in a way that is vastly underpowered and you know we, we just have to get beyond these, these, these simplistic idea that there are easy main effects to find that might make me unpopular but we have we have work to be done then you know our categorical classification the idea that our diseases are discontinuous from health and discontinuous from each other is clearly failing and i will come back to that and then something i will not discuss more tonight but is is a topic for future lectures which is this the incompatibility of cognitive neuroscience which basically says we have no introspective access to decision-making or, 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 or plans for action, as they actually are formulated in the brain, versus our, again, really ineluctable, intuitive uh, picture of uh, self-control of action and of what's going on in our psyches. You know, you can ask me why I um, left philosophy in 1976 and went into neuroscience and I could give you an answer I doubt it would really be uh, veridical, right? But it might be compelling. It's probably changed over the years as well. So um, I don't expect you to look at the science necessarily of this slide, but there's some empirical evidence for the the kind of obstacles in, in psychiatry. And that is that the efficacy of our pharmacopoeia is terribly stalled. It's actually stalled for more than half a century. Uh, While, you know, so lithium was discovered, you know, or at least its therapeutic properties were predicted by John Cade in 1949. Uh, The first antipsychotic drug was discovered serendipitously in 1951, where it was being used by a French surgeon as a pre-anesthetic. The first antidepressant drugs were discovered serendipitously in the early 1950s and then established as antidepressants in 1957. Isoniazid was being used as an antituberculous drug it didn't uh, impress the mycobacteria, but in the uh, patients in the sanatoria where it was uh, sort of Magic Mountain-like, you know, uh, everyone was sort of depressed. Uh, the, the drug was used, and while the TB didn't get better, their moods brightened, and lo and behold, the first monoamine oxidase inhibitor, so forth. But the, the key thing is that there is no commonly used psychotropic drug today that has a different molecular target than these prototype drugs from the 1950s and except for the accident of one drug clozapine which was discovered and nobody really knows why it's more efficacious in the early 1960s efficacy has not improved indeed our most modern ssris while they're more tolerable they're far safer than these drugs are no more effective maybe less so uh, there there there's real evidence of the scientific stuckness of this field so how did we get here? Uh, well, this is a you know pretty unfair, uh, because so, abbreviated history. But I think, in essence, it's true that the, these serendipitous discoveries were a clinical blessing. I mean, the drugs have side effects. They get criticized. But frankly, we, we wouldn't be without them. They're really very, very important to people. Um, but they were an intellectual curse, because they seemed miraculous. And they sort of fixated psychiatry on their initial molecular interactions. So now serendipity, of course, is not always bad. So this is a picture of Alexander Fleming who discovered penicillin, and probably many people know the story. He, uh, he let his Petri dishes uh, sit out for too long and they got moldy. And uh, in, instead of uh, throwing them out, he looked and he saw these rings of clearing of the bacterial lawn where there were spots of mold. And he realized there was something in that mold that was inhibiting the bacterial growth. Now he discovered penicillin, but microbiology, as hard as it is, it's easier than psychiatry. And there were scientific tools to say, well, let's, let's try different molds and let's try different bacteria and different media. And a whole uh, set of different useful antibiotics were discovered in that way. But when Henri Labrie, our French surgeon, gave his patients uh, chlorpromazine, which you may know as Thorazine or Larjactyl, the first antipsychotic drug, he was so impressed with the sedation, he told his colleagues, Delay and Deniker, why don't you use it, you know, on your agitated psychotic patients? And they did, and it turned out the sedation was a side effect. Miraculously, their hallucinations and delusions melted away. But psychiatry is not like microbiology. What, what was to be done to discover new drugs? And so the drug was given to animals, and said, and then people asked, you know, what, what's the effect on, on on rats? And the first Tests uh, were actually tests of side effects. They, you know, antipsychotic drugs block dopamine receptors, uh, which makes animals uh, a model of Parkinson's disease. And so they fell off a spinning rod. Uh, To this day, drug companies use the following test: they inject a rodent with amphetamine. Amphetamine releases dopamine. Rodents run around. You then give the rodent. uh, an unknown compound. If the rodent slows down, you, you think you have a, a new antipsychotic drug. Uh, this is not a model of schizophrenia or of any psychotic disorder. You're releasing dopamine in the brain, and then you know you have something that gets into the brain, crosses the blood-brain barrier, and blocks dopamine. Um, so it's sort of a pharmacologic <coughs> Uh But the problem was, in the, absent, because in the absence of better brain science, in the absence of anything else, uh, you know, the, the, the people who developed these assays uh, initially understood that there was a risk of the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, right? Uh, but what else was there to do? And, and so uh, this is how we end up uh, 50 years later with every single drug having the same molecular target, but worse than that, with a dopamine theory of schizophrenia. When again, this is not a model of schizophrenia, which is a very complicated disorder with uh, cognitive deficits preceding psychosis. This is, this is just a test of, uh, you, know, psycho- you know, you can use these antipsychotic drugs on people with Alzheimer's disease or mood disorders or, or, or what have you. But this idea that, you know, if, if, if a drug worked on an animal and then a new compound worked on an animal, that was called predictive validity, and that's what led us to this terrible uh, therapeutic cul-de-sac. But it's even more challenging. And and in fact, we don't have, I would assert, any animal models of any real psychiatric disorders with the exception of rare monogenic forms of autism where we can make transgenic animals and learn at least something about evolutionary conserved circuits. Uh, I, I, I like this, uh, always this quote from uh, Dobzhansky, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. But what that means here is that when we do basic, basic brain science or any basic science, of course, we're unconstrained. All you want to do is uh, find some general principles that are of interest. But if you want to model a disease, model it, then you have to take uh, evolutionary conservation into account. And again, what happened you know, in psychiatry, for lack of other things to do is somehow a rodent with hyperlocomotion became at times a model of ADHD, at times model of mania, at times model of psychosis. Uh, a rat, the, time it would, the amount of time it would swim in a beaker of cold water became a marker of whether it was depression-like and pharmacologists gave us the name of behavioral despair uh, to fool themselves ever after. And this idea of face validity, that is something that reminds us of the human symptoms as a model, um, is is dangerously naive because it, it basically uh, uh, doesn't pay attention to things like you know, phenocopy, something that looks like the illness, but there are many different causes in the brain, or convergent evolution, right? You know, rodents have working memory, humans have working memory, but the underlying mechanisms mechanisms and natural selection of a nocturnal, non-social, olfactory animal are very different from primates who are visual, social, and diurnal. Um, And uh, in some sense, we ended up in a situation where we accepted phenocopies or convergent evolution as if we were classifying insects and birds and bats together. That sounds harsh, but we we really have to deal with these uh, conceptual problems. Well, that's pretty pessimistic, but, you know, there was always some important information that people knew was lying around, but we couldn't access it, and that is uh, in genetics. And we knew this because even though there's lots of criticism of twin studies and uh, the, the data is being corrected now that we have molecular information, it is just true that no matter how we diagnose it, autism, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder are highly influenced by genes with, Pretty high heritabilities, which doesn't mean genes are fate. I will, you know. So here are two discordant monozygotic twins with schizophrenia. An ancient slide from Dan Weinberger. This twin has schizophrenia. They they share 100% of their DNA sequences. Has uh, psychosis. Has enlarged brain ventricles. The co-twin is not normal, as we now know. They have certain cognitive issues. They have a thinner cortex than would be normal, but they don't have psychosis and they don't have this severe uh, brain atrophy. So, you know, genes are not fate, uh, but they really strongly influence uh, these disorders. Uh, And in fact, autism and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and ADHD are among the most heritable of all, you know, common-ish human disorders. So more heritable even than, you know, type two diabetes uh, and even uh, BRCA1, ha- you know, depending on the precise mutation, has less predictable effects, perhaps, than, uh, than, than, than some of these disorders. Whereas depression uh, is much more environmentally influenced, has a heritability of about 35%, according to Ken Kendler, who spoke here uh, last year so what do i mean by molecular clues hiding in our genomes well if 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 a a genetic so we have twenty thousand genes and if a you know if if, uh and, and there's different alphabets and if i have the letter a where you have a c and so forth you know it's the same gene but it might act a little bit differently and these slight variances do everything from you know why my nose looks sort of like my parents or why on average, my height is, uh, you know, thousands of genes do this, but, you know, why my height is within one standard deviation of the average of my parents, or else something bad has happened, uh, to why, you know, I might have, uh, you know, uh, hay fever, uh, and what my liability is to a whole variety of ills, including uh, mental illnesses. And the way this happens is that these different flavors of genes, these different alleles, uh, alter the molecular machinery inside of cells that undergird neural circuits and, and slightly change their function. And in, in psychiatric disorders, it tends to be, you know, many hundreds of tiny little tweaks that, that sort of add up and bias a circuit, perhaps toward, you know, one thing uh, or, or, or another. So in essence, what the genes are saying is, here's a, here's a instruction set, here's a a a, a parts list which when altered with this flavor and not that flavor alters your liability to mental illness. But this was inaccessible because our brains are not like Mendel's peas. I've already told you that that we we now know that the liability to depression or schizophrenia or almost all of autism, not the most severe forms that also have severe intellectual disability is due to small changes, d- risk flavors in uh, many hundreds of genes, maybe, maybe 5% of our genomes uh, m- might influence our liability uh, to these conditions, also to normal temperamental uh, variation. Uh, Mendel, of course, which we all overlearned in uh, secondary school, you know, taught us about uh, traits that are influenced by a single gene. And he did this, of course, by ignoring everything that didn't quite fit his integer values, which was a brilliant tactic. But, you know, we know that, you know, uh, here pink flowers are dominant over white and, you know. Uh, and this, this model, uh, uh, this simplistic model is still a bit too influential. I mean, it's going away, but it's still a bit too influential in psychiatry and certainly outside the field. You hear still people talking about a gene for depression and a gene for grumpiness and a gene for criminality. And of course, there's no such thing. These are highly polygenically influenced and genes by themselves are not faith, which makes it very, very difficult. So I would actually just autobiographically, um, I would say that um, in, two, in 2001, uh, I decided I should uh, leave uh, the National Institute of Mental Health in the US um, because the, um, I, I was having trouble working for the Bush administration. And, um, and what would have been most obvious would be for me to go back to uh, my lab. And what was least obvious was going and being provost of Harvard uh, but, you know, Larry Summers had called me. But th- what, what really mattered is in 2001, I was in absolute despair about any traction on these problems. Um, you know, the, the, we, I knew that genes would be important. I had started collecting DNA samples and putting them away, and my successor, Tom Insull, continued that. But we had just, it was just too hard a problem. The signals were too many in number and too small in magnitude and uh, imaging and other human biology was not uh, again it was just too difficult a problem and so i took a 10-year time out and uh, during that time something remarkable happened which is technology changed everything so i always show my students this i love this painting of galileo because the artist gives him a brilliant gleaming forehead because as we know scientists are really very smart, and he was a great genius. Down here in the dark in his lap is the telescope. Right? So uh, it reminds us that, that there are times when um, you need new observations. And without um, technology, which in this case was incremental advances in the ability to grind glass into lenses, right? it allowed him to build his telescope and to see the four brightest moons of Jupiter confirm the Copernican view of the universe. So what's happened uh, uh, to, to us is uh, that uh, we, we were stuck sort of pre-Galileo in recycling these pharmacologic hypotheses, dopamine, serotonin. Uh, uh, we uh, knew, knew so little that this was a prob- problematic, so is my typography, um, that this was problematic because um, you know, we we kept re- focusing on a few neurotransmitters in a brain that has, you know, eighty-five billion cells, five thousand cell types, a hundred trillion synapses or more. Complex neural circuits. The same cell can participate in multiple circuits depending on um, the the occasion, and uh, we we just needed a whole set of new observations. We needed our moons of Jupiter, although there would be many more. And the thing about genetics is if you can confidently, that is, with adequate statistical power, if you can confidently associate a gene with a condition, then you know it is participating. But the challenge is, given the small effect size, the many genes, and the extraordinary heterogeneity of human neuropsychiatric disorders, um, we needed extraordinary sample sizes, and we you know, would have to spend an awful lot of money to collect those, and uh, the Human Genome Project, which uh, published in, like, 2002, spent uh, $3 billion on the first human genome, and that's not scalable, right? Um, But what happened in the last 10 years is that technology changed everything. The cost of sequencing DNA has come down a million-fold since the Genome Project. So Moore's law about uh, computer transistors looks very torpid in comparison. In fact, right now when I sequence a genome at the Broad Institute, it's something below $2,000. But the price, but what I spend with Google or Amazon for the data transfer and storage is $500, right? Because the data set is so large. So these things are actually starting to converge. But if you can do, uh, well, I'll talk about a gene chip, a psych chip for 50 bucks, You can do a lot of people, and if you can sequence all of the protein coding genes, which is one to two percent of the genome, for three hundred bucks, you can do a lot of people. And so this is the story. So this is uh, just throw this in just as a matter of explanation. This is human population history. So you know humans percolated along at a few tens of millions of people, and then uh, and, and 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 here most of the variants that we have, they may be in different ratios in different uh, uh, depending on your continent of origin, but uh, natural selection had a long time to work and all of the different flavors of genes, all the different alleles are common that uh, uh, these, these old ones, and we can array them on a microchip uh, uh, with a million uh, DNA markers and, and, and learn what we need to learn about your common variants. But then the Neolithic revolution happened and people with farming populations started to grow And then you guys here started the industrial revolution. And then, you know, we transitioned from our primate uh, period of population growth to what looks more like a rodent uh, period where we've gone in really 12 or 15 generations to 8 billion people. And there there are about 50 or 60 mutations per new human. And, you know, no time for cleansing natural selection except for very severe mutations. And so, here, in order to find the, the, the millions and millions and millions of rare variants that might influence disease, we actually have to sequence people's genes, but that's now possible. And here is at the Broad Institute, where I am unpacking a new, you know, new group of uh, Illumina Hi-Seq Xs, which they only sell as a 10 pack at a million each, but we got it wholesale. Um, all right, so just to give you an example so that, you know, to make it real, right? This is, uh, this is a study of schizophrenia. This is called the Manhattan plot, because presumably they're skyscrapers. And this, this is your chromosomes, one, two, three, arrayed at the bottom. And this, this is just the probability that our finding is true. And this line is a probability of p.05, for those of you who do biological research, corrected for million comparisons, because that's what's on the chip. And, and uh, uh, you know this was uh, published more than a year ago. But with, and this gives you a sense of the power you need to detect these differences. With 37,000 schizophrenia cases and 113,000 controls, there are 108 independent chunks of DNA that harbor a variant, which increases the risk of schizophrenia. And this is really quite certain. And actually now, it hasn't been a, another data freeze in publication, there are about 130 such loci, and we're still on the steep part of the discovery curve. So, you know, we, Lord knows how many of our genes will be involved. Critically, the odds ratio, you know, if you have any one of these variants, each one increases your likelihood of schizophrenia on average by 8%. So these are, again, these are really small signals. Populations are very heterogeneous, or are different genetic paths to risk, and that's why um, this takes such enormous power. But look, we're starting to have a parts list uh, for schizophrenia. These are, these are genes that are uh, clearly involved. Uh, on the other hand, you know, putting them together, it's going to be a lot harder than putting together this, this, this watch. And the idea is that if we're going to understand this, if this acts like the rest of biology, these many, many, many signals are going to converge on a finite number of molecular machines, or pathways, or processes in the brain. And we're beginning to see convergence, but it's really much too early right now uh, to declare any kind of victory. Maybe we've gotten lucky, just one example. Um, Schizophrenia, those of you who are, you know, who've seen patients or know about psychiatry, uh, this is, uh, is, is an interesting process. It begins in mid To late adolescence. So, this is age and years. You can't see this is age 10, 15, 20, 25. And what you see is that you know um, you have the largest number of synapses you'll ever have in early adolescence. And then this process, there's always synaptic synaptogenesis and synaptic pruning, this process of refinement going on. But in adolescence, uh, there's this very robust period of synaptic pruning. Getting rid of inefficient synapses, preserving in in, in this in a, always in a competition the strong synapses, and then ultimately this is followed by myelination, you know, wiring, and you know we, we know that cognitively a 15-year-old is very different from a 10-year-old in terms of all kinds of cognitive control and moral reasoning and lots of other things, and a 20-year-old is very different from a 15-year-old, uh, and these are the processes that undergird it. Uh, but what happens in schizophrenia is that there appears to be over-pruning. So if you look at these uh, brain images, um, uh, this is uh, uh, compared to a, a, a healthy person. Um, the red red is always dire in the pseudocolor. Uh, there's, there's greater pruning, over-pruning, cortical thinning in a rostrocaudal gradient, more in prefrontal cortex, temporal cortex, these high-level evolutionarily recent association cortices. And uh, the, the post-mortem literature is very thin. But if we're to believe it, there's this famous picture from David Lewis's lab at the University of Pittsburgh showing you know, healthy dendrites with their dendritic spines. And then in schizophrenia, there's an impoverishment of dendrites. That's, that's why the brain shrinks, in theory, not because cells die, but because there are less neural processes and fewer synapses. And I, this is true-ish. I mean, I I, I think this data is good, but there just hasn't been enough robust uh, replication. So what's cool is, right, the biggest association signal in schizophrenia is in something called the MHC locus, which is associated with the immune system. And this, this is a nightmare of rearrangement, but my colleague Steve McCarroll and a graduate student figured out how to decode this and found that the biggest association signal in schizophrenia is something called complement factor C4. Complement system is used in the periphery to kill cancer cells, kill microbes, finish off dying cells. But in the the brain, the complement system actually is uh, used um, by microglia, uh, which are the sort of the representatives of the phagocytic aspects of the immune system in the brain to prune synapses, and the complement system is actually reused in the brain as the eat me signal. There's also a protective, there's a don't eat me signal, sounding a bit like uh, Lewis Carroll here. Uh, There's the the, the eat me signal on weak synapses. And lo and behold, you know, schizophrenia brains have more C4 on average than normal brains. Now, we don't know that this is true, but it sort of fits in with this idea that schizophrenia is involved with over pruning and somehow you can make a speculative story that, you know, there are a lot of synaptic genes involved and the synapses work well enough. A lot of people go to university, right? Uh, uh, and then have this decline and onset of psychosis. So the synapses are working well enough, but they don't smell right to the microglia and these pruning processes are over exuberant. That's probably too simple, but. But and and we wouldn't expect to have that kind of result yet. But you know um, that, that's where this idea of the biology is, is going that these really are you know real biological disorders. You know depression and anxiety disorders, maybe more difficult and more quote functional, less anatomic. But 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 over time, you know, without overclaiming, I think we're going to really develop a mechanistic picture of you know. What the what produces these symptoms and syndromes? And to give you some idea of where this is going, this is a big collaborative global effort. There are people here involved in these, uh, both in the um, uh, DNA collections. And Ilana Singh, who's in the front row, is going to help us with some of the pressing ethical issues around collections, especially in the developing world. Um, but you know, right now in 2015. Gene chip, there have been 60,000 schizophrenia pa- patients, 6,000 have had their protein coding gene sequenced, thousands have had their whole genome sequenced, and you can see this is pretty ambitious because the idea is to sort of, as I put it indelicately, kill the problem. That is, you know, finish off uh, this aspect of our history and make all the data public and let everybody figure out what to do with this, uh, with this information. Autism is lagging, but it will, it will catch up. Okay, so the real reason we do this is to inform this mechanistic biology with a view toward treatment and prevention. And you know, uh, I, I don't think I would, I would have my heart in my mouth if I was messing with synaptic pruning in a healthy ish 15 year old, but nonetheless, you know, uh, that's really the, the, the goals are really to stave off these illnesses. But genetics can also help us at least worry about our dysfunctional classification system. So, classification is really nothing but a cognitive schema put on data to make it intelligible and useful. The problem with many classifications um, is that they become entrenched for all kinds of reasons. So, the DSM has become entrenched because it's what healthcare systems and psychiatrists use to get paid, and it's what patients in insurance systems need to get reimbursed, and also the system's gotten reified so that if you want to write a paper about schizophrenia, you have to use the DSM or the ICD criteria, and then you don't do much research on alternatives, and this has been a real problem. But, you know, there's no classification that is forever. Poor Pluto got kicked out of the Planet Club uh, for being too small and not clearing its orbit, and microorganisms have not studied Linnaeus. They're trading DNA uh, what pigs are trading DNA all the time, and um, not, not really staying very stable. Our current system is failing because, you know, we see that anyone with a single diagnosis may have two or three or four or five so-called comorbidity, but actually uh a reminder that we have diagnostic silos drawn unnaturally fine. Uh, And we see also that even when we diagnose someone with depression, they're heterogeneous, which is why it's so difficult to get uh, any results from imaging studies. If you are positive on five of nine DSM criteria, uh, one patient in an imaging study might be positive on criteria one through five and the other in five through nine. And that sort of makes the investigator's life pretty difficult. Um, you know, it's, uh, this, this, the DSM idea started really from Kraepelin and then uh, uh, Robbins and Gouzet famously thought there would be a convergence of clinical descriptions with laboratory studies. Like Kraepelin, they wanted to delineate disorders from each other, uh, course of illness and family history, but in fact, they don't converge. The phenomenology, the symptoms are too far removed from the underlying processes for them to actually... And this, this also goes to our issue of why later, you know, maybe, you know, subjective descriptions are too far removed from these mechanisms as well, but they're too far from the mechanisms to predict uh, what the person actually has. These do not converge on valid entities. Now, um, Robbins and Guze, following Kraplin, conceptualized mental disorders as discontinuous categories, but without you know, with, I, they're not around, can't interview them, but you know, this was a time in the 1970s when the anti-psychiatry movement was saying, look, you guys are just rounding up eccentrics and annoying people and putting them in hospitals. And uh, they wanted to say, no, 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 these, are, these disorders are real. Uh, the other thing is there was this serendipitous pharmacologic revolution and they, wanted to, they had the idea that you could match people by diagnosis with treatment. Uh, and so their idea was that, you know, these are uh, real diseases like smallpox. You know, you have it or you don't, or Ebola, you have it or you don't have it. It can be severe or mild, but, but you, it's discontinuous uh, from health. But actually, most chronic, common, non-communicable diseases uh, of humans, and this makes more sense now that we understand, of course, all of medicine, this polygenicity, this, you know, combination of many, many genes of small effects plus environmental effects, developmental effects, uh, you know, so very complex causation uh, that 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 most illnesses of this sort are better understood dimensionally. That is, uh, hypertension. You know, you it's easier than psychiatry. You can blow up a blood pressure cuff, but it's everyone has a blood pressure, right? It's continuous with normalcy. It's actually it's on two dimensions, systolic and diastolic. Psychiatry will have multiple dimensions, and um, and. How do you set a threshold? Well, you set a threshold by having empirical follow-up studies and deciding that, but then it's interesting, then you need a policy decision for dimensional disorders. A committee gets together and says, well, um, this is too many myocardial infarctions, and so we're going to bin, you know, we're going to take this continuous variable and we're going to call this borderline, mild, moderate, and severe hypertension. They're going to have different treatment implications. Um, and." Uh, and this is really important in psychiatry because one of the things that, and we can talk about this later, no time tonight, maybe in questions, psychiatry is probably very concerned about this issue of over-medicalizing all of normal life, right, of making claims for, for normal sadness and grief, or making, giving anyone, any boy who hasn't done his homework or has annoyed the teacher, a diagnosis of ADHD. Uh, but in some sense, the, 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 these categories with their rigid and arbitrary thresholds, basically, you know, a bunch of psychiatrists got together in the committee and says, you know, you need five of nine of this, uh, I think exacerbates the problem. It be much better if we could begin to study the dimensionality and sit down sensibly and set thresholds and recognize the thresholds will change with age and with context. Um, You know uh, one has different thresholds for treating hypertension depending on age and and context Uh, we have a long way to go because we've been captured by the dsm and we don't we haven't studied these dimensions but the genetics is sort of interesting because it it uh, in some ways I i think is the last nail in the in the coffin of the dsm categories even if uh, my friends uh, who uh, at the American Psychiatric Association don't know that it's walking dead and they're still making a lot of money from it. So maybe maybe they win. But, um, you know, uh, if you look at, in autism, if you look at a measure like the Vineland composite score for, uh, for functioning, what you see is that um, people who are Diagnosed with autism and people who are unaffected with autism have overlapping Scores they, they separate as uh, two peaks, but they have overlapping scores on these dimensions. Well, that's neither here nor there But what's really interesting is now if you look at Burden of risk genes for autism and you look at, um, at uh, a uh, a measure of functioning, what you actually see is that uh, these autistic traits are um, distributed in the population. If it was portrayed in a different way, it would would look like a normal distribution in the population. Meaning there are people who have a pile up of these traits, which are difficulties in social communication, social cognition. uh, narrowed interest, rigid behavioral repertoires, uh, but there are lots of people in the population you know with mild versions of this, right, um, so, some of whom actually are very successful academics, um, and we would never call them ill right and and so far, it looks like the the burden of risk alleles is also distributed in the same way in the population, so you can you can. It's early, but there have been some really interesting papers published by my colleagues Elise Robinson and Mark Daly, showing that it's really the pileup of risk alleles and the distribution of risk alleles that um, has a lot to say about whether you have affected status. Obviously, again, genes are not fate; other things have to happen. But or 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 you have just some you know you're you're socially awkward, or you you uh, are can be overfocused on your math or whatever. Um, and, um, and there, but there's no discontinuity. There is no sense in which this is a discontinuous category. And the same is true for ADHD. So, uh, and, and we're gonna probably also, not gonna, we, we also see the same thing, not just in the separation from normalcy, we see this between disorders. So there's, there are a lot of shared risk alleles between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and unshared and there's other shared risk alleles between schizophrenia and autism and unshared, and they're different than the ones shared with bipolar. So I think we really, in coming up with a better, more compelling biological picture of mental illness, uh, we're gonna have dimensions, continuous with normalcy, where cutoffs have to be set based on empirical data plus a policy decision, and we're gonna have spectra, right, where there's a lot of sharing across these disorders. Uh, that said, I think we, we are going to end up with a um, compelling, ultimately biological picture of mental illness. OK. All right, so I began saying I wasn't going to overclaim, and you can see we don 't know all that much, but uh, finally, I think there is light at the end of a tunnel, which is not an oncoming train. Um, I think what we're seeing is that we're able to do genetics because of these advances in technology. Uh, And what we're seeing are that there are polygenic alterations in brain function that affect cognition, emotion regulation, executive function, behavior, and in certain constellations, these map onto psychopathology. And, you know, right now we're at the stage of finding these different alleles and asking what cells are expressed in and making models in stem cells and so forth. There's no bright line as I've begun to argue, obviously very quickly and in a superficial way in an hour between well and ill and no bright lines between what are now diagnostic silos in, in the DSM. So if a kid has. Autistic traits and ADHD and OCD and a mood disorder, they don't have four diseases. They have one process that is very complex. Um, And we're gonna have dimensions and spectra that are uh, with thresholds set by age and context. The other thing is that these genetic tools are gonna be really useful for epidemiology and neurobiology I've already alluded to. You know, what cells and what circuits are these genes expressed in and what do they do and what do they do in these different flavors but really interesting in understanding the environment. So let's take schizophrenia. So their their environmental epidemiology has long associated urban birth and migration as risk factors for schizophrenia. So what is that? Those aren't causes, right? Those are proxies for something. And it's really impossible to know what they're proxies for. But let's imagine that we can now stratify people by genotype at some point in the future um like who is likely to have schizophrenia by virtue of a what's called a polygenic risk score or a gene pileup and by the way uh, some danish collaborators um and mortensen can already predict in a reconstruction experiment a likelihood of schizophrenia of 20 percent in a in an epidemiologic sample using just this polygenic risk score but let's say you know it's not just your polygenic risk the pile up at different specific flavors Maybe we can begin to stratify people and then iterate between these epidemiologic findings and, um, and, and the genetics and actually begin to hone in on uh, environmental factors that are part of the causal chain. I mean, that would be exciting because, from the point of view of prevention, maybe, you know, urban birth is not something we could prevent. And uh, certainly in Asia, uh, urban birth is on the increase as people move in from the countryside. We don't want to stop that. Uh, but but what is that a proxy for? Maybe we can find it, you know, people say maybe it's stress, maybe it's crowding, but those are not real, those, those wouldn't turn out to be useful, right? Maybe we, can, maybe we can help our environmental epidemiologists prevent and maybe, you know, as in cancer where your genotype matches the medical treatment you get, maybe these diseases will also Uh, stratify in ways that might predict treatment outcomes. So it's early days, none of this may yet work. We don't know that these diseases really stratify. We're just in the discovery phase, Uh, but it's a very exciting time. Okay, so what I've done today is try to give you an honest, clearly non-triumphalist picture of where psychiatry is in drawing a mechanistic view of what these diseases are. And uh, clearly, in my view, we have to begin uh, uh, bottom-up with genes because we can show without question that they are associated with phenotypes. But that then begs enormous questions about how and what they're doing in the brain. But I think, uh, you know, at least it gives me a platform when I will combine this tomorrow with what we're learning from systems and cognitive and computational neuroscience to to argue that uh, we have to pay a lot of attention to, we have to give a lot of credence to the idea that we are, we're going to understand one day this brain machine and psychopathology and, and at least treating the patient sounds terrible but as object, right, fixing their brain which we don't do a very great job of today, uh, is something that we'll be increasingly good at. And then the question really is, um, given that, if you trust that we're gonna really get there and then I'm not just whistling in the dark, how is that going to connect to the the human connection uh, that patients should expect of us and that we should expect of ourselves? And importantly, this question of, how did I come to suffer in this way? I don't. I don't think it's going to be. I don't think people are going to develop a um, therapeutic narrative based on, you know, I have this allele at, you know, this and this SNP and, you know, and so forth. Um, and, but those will be issues for tomorrow. Thank you very much.